there has been something on the account. There has been a deposit. We know of this as well, for those of us that use checks, you know that a bank check, a bank draft, is only as good as the account behind it. Were I to give you today a check for $10,000 and you hustled off to the bank tomorrow to cash it, I got news for you, it's not going to work. Don't do it. It's only as good as the account behind it. And coming this morning to John chapter 14 and making our way back to the upper room where the Lord Jesus Christ gathers with his disciples, we have this, we have this inspired record of what Jesus is leaving behind for his men, what he's depositing to their account. We have the privilege of eavesdropping on this gathering, thanks to the Apostle John's inspired record. There has already been some disturbing news. There's been the news of a betrayer in the midst. Judas has departed out into the night, indicative of where his heart is. We've also heard from Jesus that he's going away, and this has been disturbing for his men. He's leaving them three years together. It's over. He's going to leave them. This has been alarming for his men. The disciples are heading into a storm, and they are not ready. A hurricane is coming, and they haven't battened down the hatches. And yet Jesus Christ, how glorious, is committed to being a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He makes available a peace that passes understanding. Last week together we said that Jesus Christ is a bridge over troubled waters. He's present in grief. He's a pathway over stormy, disturbing circumstances. If, if that is the what, then we ask the question this morning of the text, but how does he do that? If that's what he'll do, if that's what he does, how does he do that? How is peace deposited into the account of his followers? How will he address things like separation anxiety? Wilting hope, deepening sadness, growing fears. How does he do that? As Jesus huddles with his disciples that night, he reveals his plans to them, and he brings them and us into his confidence. In talking to him, to them, down through the ages, he talks to us. Here in Westerlo, December 15th, 2019, he talks to us. The central idea that I think towers over this lengthy passage that I read is simply this. Peace is the result of a promise-keeping God. Peace, shalom, is the result. Wholeness, togetherness, integration is the result of a promise-keeping God. Deep water experiences, we've all had them or will have them, down through the ages are an invitation into a deeper relationship with the Prince of Peace. Peace for the God-fearer is possible because God promises a deposit that we can count on. As our bodies and minds fray and fade, our souls are centers of being hold because He is holding us. And so over the expanse of the text, let me lift up three anchoring thoughts. First of all this, there is the promise of a helper given in verses 13 to 16. 
Did you notice as the text began, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. If you ask anything according to my name, I will do it. There is this glorious consistency, this connection between what the disciples need, what they ask for, and Jesus' name or Jesus' character. If we ask in his name, in the name of the Son. Now, this is not a mantra where we just keep saying, Lord Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, and it has this kind of rabbit's foot concept. It's that it's in connection with the character and the purposes of God, with the plans of God. When you ask in my name, when you ask under my tutelage, I'll hear you, I'll respond. The prospect for the disciples of doing greater things demands greater power. You want to do something bigger or better for the kingdom of God, you will need God's help. That's the force of the passage here. How will we get this greater power? How will the disciples be changed from what they are to what they will be? We ask that question along with them. Why am I still dealing with what I'm dealing with? I feel as immature as I was two and three and four years ago. What is going on? Well, in verse 15, we we hear it in no uncertain terms. It tells us that it takes love to obey. Where will we get this love to obey from? That's a great question. And it's the very next verse that answers that. Because we hear in verse 16, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. We have one of these great Trinitarian verses, one of these great Trinitarian gems here. Think about it, folks. God the Son asks God the Father to send God the Spirit. That's heavy. God the Son asks God the Father to send God the Spirit. This three-in-one, this triune God, comes into focus here in John chapter 14. In other words, Jesus promises to his men and ultimately to us, I will send you an, an alos, Parakletos, I will send you another helper. I may be going away, but I'm going to send to you someone like me who will help you, who will teach you and counsel you and guide you, who will convict you, who will truth you in love, who will do more than wash your feet. He will wash you from the inside out. Salvation means that we're going to heaven, but submission means that heaven comes to us. And the force of this great passage is that God would give to his men a helper who would help them to love him and obey him. One of the struggles for us as Christians in a workaday world is to obey him, to obey his rules, regulations, laws. And when we don't, we have this interior conscience the word of the living God, actuated by the spirit of the living God, who forces us into a recognition that we have left the boundaries. We're moving into territory that is harmful for us, that is soul-slaying for us, that is not sanctifying, but dirtying to our souls. The force of the passage here is that when we love God, and love is all throughout this passage, I counted ten times the word love is found from verses 13 through to 31. If 
Christ wants his men to love him, if he wants to display his love for them, then he would take the work of the helper, it would take the deposit of God, the Spirit. I've been, I've been amazed over the years in studying the gospel records and the book of Acts and reading on into the epistles and things like that, that the disciples never really seem to take flight in their ministry until Jesus goes. And he will say that later in John. If I don't go, he won't come. It is expedient for me, necessary for me to go away, because if I go away, God the Spirit will come. When you get to the book of Acts and you see the disciples finally begin to come into their own, there has been this treasure trove of God the Spirit descending upon them. Not coming temporarily in the Old Testament sense for a particular time and season and task, but indwelling, taking up residence. The wonderful deposit of peace given to us here is the deposit of the one who is like, alos, paraclete, come alongside her. One like me will come alongside of you, and he'll minister to you, and he'll teach you, and he'll guide you into truth. Folks, as we think about gift-giving at Christmas time, which is fine and good and right and proper, it behooves us as the people of God to think about the greatest gift of all. After Jesus Christ's sacrificial death on the cross and the saving work that that becomes for us as the Lamb, it is this gift of God, the Spirit. I agree with Francis Chan who says that the Holy Spirit is the forgotten God in our day and age. In the sense that maybe we become frightened about his ministry, we're unsure and secure about his ministry, or frankly we just so grieve him that we're not aware of what he wants to accomplish. Think of this profound promise how will he deal with their separation anxiety how will he deal with all that they're going through in their lives he will send a person i think about all the lonely people that exist around us with no sense that god would take up residence within making you a new creature this is a huge encouragement for the disciples. It's a huge encouragement. I'm leaving, but you're going to have one like me inside of you. The disciples will never really understand the glory of that until later. In fact, Jesus says that to them later in the passage. You're going to get this later. This is a bomb of truth that will go off later in your lives. Think about how profound this promise is. Our deepest struggles demand people, manuals, and apps and websites can do lots to help us but to untangle the really thorny stuff it demands a person this past week i was practicing ice rescues at lake underdunk had to cut a hole in the ice and then jump in oh, i had one of those suits on one of the first things they said is when you get in there with this struggling person calm them down and i'm thinking who's going to calm me down <laughs> you get in there and they're struggling and I, Hey, James, I don't want to knock you out. I'm here to help. It takes a person. And a young man at a church in Halifax I pastored, and he trained all the lifeguards for the city of Halifax. And he said, you wouldn't believe when people are drowning how violent they could be. How violent they could be. He said, sometimes you have to actually accost them to help them. But it takes the presence of a person, the presence of a person. And when it comes to peace, brothers and sisters, it is the presence of a person. 
This is not some paradigm. This is not some theory. This is not some therapy. This is not some new book to read. It is the work of God the Spirit, the person of God. It's an amazing thought for us. In John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, it revealed to us how the saint goes to heaven to abide with God. But here, God says, I'm coming to abide with the saint. I'm coming to be with you. Isn't that part of the wonder of the name Emmanuel, God with us in ongoing, present ministry? Brothers and sisters, if you want an antidote for worry and anxiety, take up the book and read. Take up the book and read of God the Spirit's ministry and what Jesus Christ has left behind for us. God promises to deposit within us one who will convict and comfort and console and counsel us. And so that is is the deposit of the Spirit. That is, first of all, the promise of the Helper. Secondly, in verses 17 to 26, notice his work. And we've alluded to it already, but let me expand on it. There is the work of the helper. What will he do? Well, according to verse 17, God the Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. And oh, how we need truth. With so much misinformation and fake news and deception and flat-out propaganda, to have inside of us a divine truth-teller. What great comfort that is. Have you ever had an experience where You're talking with someone, or you're listening to something, or you're reading something, and it just doesn't pass the sniff test. Sometimes I'll talk about, you know, I'm talking, my spidey sense is tingling. I don't mean I have spidey sense. I mean that God, the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, takes up residence and promises that if, if I'll be sensitive, if I'll listen up, if I'll be aware of his ministry, that he will help me. And we have that available to us. Such is the glory of his deposit. Keep in mind the world cannot receive the Spirit because he comes in response to faith. In verse 18, we're reminded that we're not left as orphans. We're not left in vulnerable positions. The Spirit of God makes the death, burial, and resurrection real and vital to the child of God. It is God the Spirit at work in our spirits that makes this supernatural work potent and dynamic. God the Spirit removes the scales from our eyes so that we can see, believe, and be prepared for eternity. Verse 19, as Christ parts, as he is gone from view, the Holy Spirit will stay behind as proof of relationship. Verse 20 declares the marvel of the Trinity's ministry again. And then 21, the critical ministry of the Holy Spirit is that we are propelled to love Jesus and obey him through the ministry of God, the Spirit. He's the catalyst. If you're looking for an image or an idea, think with me of the classic movie Pinocchio, Jiminy Cricket's little ditty. He's the conscience. The Holy Spirit becomes our conscience. That's why we're so miserable when we sin. What a mercy that is. Were we not miserable in our sin and in our rebellion, we could not claim the ministry of God the Spirit. Some of us, sadly, tragically, are too Christian to enjoy sin and too sinful to enjoy Christianity, so we find ourselves at an impasse. And yet, amazingly, there is this merciful misery that is a part of the Christian's life as we stop obeying his commands. 
how good and proper and right that is. For surely in our stupidity and in our rebellion, he will awaken us to change repentance and another course. Love for Christ is not a shallow emotion that's merely talked about. Love for Christ means obeying his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not mere duty. We recognize that this is something that God does from within us. Talking about this work, Judas Iscariot asks in 22, how will this manifest or how will this show? Why don't you show yourself to us and why are you showing yourself to us and not to the world? The fault line given to us in 23 is between the saved and the unsaved. And it, 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 it swirls around in terms of the concept of love for Jesus. To, to love Jesus is to be loved by the Father. And God makes his home with us. To say that you love Jesus but are uninterested or unable to obey him reveals, according to God's word, that you don't really know him. Say, I love Jesus, I just hate obeying his word of life. You realize how utterly incongruent that is? God makes us capable, not just of loving him, but of obeying him. In verse 26, God the Spirit will teach us all things. He will teach us all things. I've had the experience over a number of years of seeing people come to know Jesus Christ. You're hearing their testimonies of coming to know Jesus Christ, and inevitably they'll say something like this, you know, I'm, I'm not a reader, I'm not really a book person, but when I came to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, man, I got into this book in a way that I'd never had before. I, I took it up and started to read. I, I listened to what the person who shared the gospel with me uh, told me to do. I started in John, and then I moved on from John, and on from there, and on from there, and I, I've never done that before. I don't read. How does that happen? Well, that's the work of God, the Spirit of truth, who takes us, even in our frailty and even in our struggle, to, to read, and he takes us to this word. And he says, you want to know me? Take up and read. The interior work of God will draw us into a deeper and deeper communion with God. We have a newfound fervency, a passion to discover who this forever friend is. And that's what makes a close, satisfying relationship with our Maker and our Savior possible. So we have, first of all, the promise of the Helper. We have the work of the Helper given to us. And then thirdly and finally, we have the result of the Helper's presence. The result of the Helper's presence. I pick it up in 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. These are well-known words to us. The struggle for us is to actually live out that truth. That reality that peace has been deposited to our account, but you've got to take the gift card and use it. You, you can't leave it home if you're shopping. You, you've got to employ that which has been deposited to us. Peace I leave with you. Stop for a moment again and just think of the timing of this encouragement. Jesus is going to experience the horror of the cross. He's going to experience separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's going to be treated as sin, as the sin eater, the Lamb of God who will take away our sin. 
He's about to experience that, but in these last moments with his men, he says, hey, listen, I'm giving you peace. I'm making peace available to you. What a wonderful, glorious thought. In this traumatic context, the display of affection for this band of misfits is nothing short of amazing. Brothers and sisters, do you see how tender Jesus Christ is? Do you see the consolation, the comfort of Jesus Christ to his friends, to those whom he loves? He's displayed love to them in washing their feet. He's spoken to them of his love and affection for them. And now he's asking them to reciprocate and love him in return as he makes this deposit of peace. There's only one true source of help for God's people, and it is the Prince of Peace. Arthur Roach describes anxiety as a thin stream of fear trickling through the mind. If it's encouraged, it cuts a channel into which all other thoughts are drained. Oh, does that describe you this morning? You're, you're feeding your anxiety, but you're not feeding this glorious sense of what God has made available to you. You, you won't, you can't take up the book and read. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, if you're going to enjoy the presence of the comer alongside her, it will mean times of quiet, times of prayer, times in the Word. Th those are the kinds of things that you've heard since Sunday school days, and they are unchanged. The necessity for them is unchanged. Show me someone who's in the Word. Show me someone who's spending time alone with God. Typically, you realize that their souls, their centers are holding because God is keeping their, their centers. How the disciples needed peace. Maybe that's you here this morning. You need peace. You need shalom and wholeness. God's word tells us that ultimate peace is found in God. It's peace not like that of the world. It's not unsatisfying. It's not shallow. It's not temporary. Christ's peace rests deep in the heart. Jesus is speaking to his men and he's speaking about his legacy, that which he would leave behind. And it isn't real estate and it isn't a trust fund and it isn't an IRA and it's not a bulging bank account. He bequeaths to his disciples peace, not an ordinary peace, not a peace that is fragile or circumstantial. So many of us invest so much in these circumstantial peace, and it doesn't last. You understand, brothers and sisters, that ultimately it's not what's in your wallet, it's who's in your heart that matters. And as the people of God, we have the high privilege, we have the glorious weight and responsibility of speaking of the Prince of Peace. To those around us at work, to those in our homes, to those that are in desperate straits to find any kind of common ground, anything solid upon which to stand. It is our great privilege to declare to them that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. In verse 29, Jesus tells us, men, you're going to get this when I'm gone. It is for a later date in your lives. And then in 31, the unity of the Father and Son, the unity that they enjoyed is the unity that the Son and his bride, the church, are supposed to enjoy. Psychologists talk about peace of mind. God talks about peace with God. 
We have in John 14 this delicious antidote. We have this delicious trust. We have this wonderful deposit, the promise of the helper, the work of the helper, the result of his presence as peace. I was thinking this past week, and I heard it, and I thought of it again. That great song, I serve a risen Savior who's in the world today. I know that he is with me, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need him, he all, he's always there. He lives. He lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He lives. He lives. He lives within my heart. That's the great privilege for us as the people of God at Christmas. That's what we get to declare. That's what we get to manifest before the watching world. That God has come to us in the midst of horrific circumstances, not the absence of trauma. Sometimes he's taking his people through trauma. And I'm looking at some of you, and I know that you're going through trauma. And yet God is supplying a stillness of soul and a peace and a solidarity that is nothing short of amazing. It's proof positive that inside of us is a helper. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that your people would hear what you want them to hear, keep what should be kept. Father, I pray that even God the Spirit would strain out that which is unhelpful. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of the upper room discourse. Thank you for letting us listen in and hear Father, we thank you for the character of Jesus Christ, our Savior, on display in this passage. I pray, Lord God, that your people, that your people would savor and long for more and more peace from you, that we'd recognize the deposit that has been made to our account, the relationship that has been forged, the, the way that is now open. Father, I pray that we'd recognize that with great joy and celebration. If there's a need for confession and cleansing and conviction, we'd, we'd plead for it, Lord. Father, I also pray for those that might be here that don't know this peace, that have never bowed down before you as Lord and Savior. They haven't recognized their, their need as a sinner, condemned and undone. Father, I pray that your word would do its work. Thank you for time together with you people. I pray that you would hear our joyful acclamation of your character. And Father, that we'd be recognizing that what we ask in your name, you will give to us and that you hear us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.